Take out your Bible, if you would, and open to the book of Genesis, chapter 23. I'm picking up where Michael left off last week, and this is the narrative account of the death of Sarah, Abraham's wife, of course, Isaac's mother. And this chapter, the death of Sarah, it it stands in stark contrast to the chapter that we just were in before, where God preserves Isaac's life. You turn the page from chapter 22 to chapter 23, and we go from life to death. Sarah's death and Abraham's grief. Abraham mourns, not unlike you and I, in the death, death of a loved one. It's difficult, it's painful, and it's hard. The loss is real, the grief is real. The sadness is real. Even fear of our own death is real, and it's real here for Abraham as we open to this text. I have a friend whose mom passed this week. She was 58. Another whose mom is in hospice care right now, won't be long. Memorial service here this week, another one just down the road this coming week. I I could go on. Many of you could too. And it's not just that death is hard and there's this intense, deep sadness that is associated with death. It's It's confusing as well. There's tension that kind of bubbles up in our soul anytime we're around it or it hits close to home. A a tension that bubbles up about what we really believe about death and the life that follows. See, we, even us as as Christians, we have questions, we have doubts, we we hope and, and we wonder just the same. What is it that's true about God's promises to us, even in death. And theologically, this is very significant. Significant to Abraham, and it's significant to us. And Abraham does something here that I think, actually that I know, offers us great hope. Hope in eternity, and even hope for today. It's not something that you might expect. It's Uh, something that doesn't necessarily jump off the page at first reading of chapter 23, but it is something that is very real. Abraham mourns, but he does not grieve without hope. Not as one without hope. Now, in the first couple of verses of chapter 23, and in the last couple of verses of chapter 23, verses 1 and 2, and then in 19 and 20, we there's a sense to which we really have all that we need to know about the narrative account. Sarah's 127 years old, Sarah dies, Abraham grieves, and Abraham buries her in Canaan. That's the story, that really is the story in its entirety. So the question becomes, what, why do we have this detail, this, this, these verses 3 through 18 that are just kind of squished in between the account of Sarah's death? And the answer to that question is this. It's because the author wants us to know something distinctive about Abraham, something remarkable about God, and something that is guaranteed for you and me. And therein we'll find our hope for today. So pick it up with me in chapter 23, beginning in verse 1. Now, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. 
Sarah died in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan, and Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Then, verse 3, Abraham rose from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I am a stranger and sojourner among you. Remember that phrase? That's true of Abraham in the moment, and that's true of Abraham spiritually speaking as well. We'll come back to that phrase. I am a stranger and a sojourner among you. Give me a burial site among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Sons of Heth answered Abraham, saying to him, Hear us, my Lord, you are a mighty prince among us. That means prince of God. You, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our graves. None of us will refuse you his grave for burying your dead. So Abraham rose, he bowed to the people of the land, that is the sons of Heth, and he spoke with them saying, if it is your wish for me to bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and approach Ephron, the son of Zohar, for me, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns, which is at the end of his field, for the full price, let him give it to me in your presence for a burial site. Now Ephron was sitting among the sons of Heth, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the sons of Heth, even of all who went in and out of the gate of his city, saying, No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. Now, I just need to pause right here to clarify something. The word give in Hebrew in this context does not mean give like we think about it today. Does not mean give like free. It, it, it's give and it has this sense of a transaction. It is, I will do business with you. In fact, Ephron's saying here, you ask for the cave, you can have the cave if you buy the field too. Abraham didn't say anything about the field. He said, I'd like to buy the cave from Ephron. Ephron says, okay, I'll transact business with you, but you gotta buy the field Two, that's going to help us for this context. Pick it up now in the middle of verse 11. I give you the cave that is in it and the field. In the presence of the sons of my people, I give it to you, bury your dead. Abraham bowed before the people of the land. He spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, if you only please listen to me, I will give you, I will do the deal, the price of the field, Accept it from me that I might bury my dead there. Then Ephron answered Abraham again, saying to him, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between me and you, except for the fact that I want you to pay it? Okay, again, in English, it doesn't translate great. He's negotiating here. So bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver which he had named. In the hearing of the sons of Heth, 400 shekels of silver, commercial standard. So Ephron's field, which was in Machpelah, which faced Mamre, the field and the cave which was in it, and all the trees which were in the field that were within all the confines of its border were deeded over to Abraham for a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth before all who went in at the gate of the city. Now verse 19, the summary to the story. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field at Machpelah, facing Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. 
So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded over to Abraham for a burial site by the sons of Heth. It's almost hard to read. There's so much detail in it. Detail about the negotiation, the back and forth of the negotiation. Lots of repetition. Bury your dead, bury your dead, bury your dead, bury your dead about Sarah's death and her ensuing burial. And all of it is to show us something distinctive about Abraham. Namely, that Abraham's actions here, what he does here, his actions here are evidence of his faith in God's promise, which is not fulfilled yet. Abraham has no place to bury his wife. Abraham has no land, even though he's been promised all of it. So what does Abraham do? Well, instead of burying his wife back in Mesopotamia, where they're both from, back with the ancestors and their family, which was the cultural norm of the day, which is what everybody did. Instead of doing that, Abraham does something very different. He finds a way and makes a place for Sarah to be buried here in Canaan in the promised land, land that was not yet theirs and wouldn't be theirs in their lifetimes. Now, now you can feel the tension of these two things in this genealogy that is right between the narrative account of Isaac and and this narrative account of the death of Sarah. It's right at the end of chapter 22. You don't have to turn there now. You can look at it later. But there are four verses that just go through the genealogy of Nahor. Nahor is the brother of Abraham, and it just walks through Nahor's sons, Nahor's grandsons, Nahor's great-grandsons, etc., etc. And the reason that that is so important right here to this text. And the reason that you can feel the tension surrounding this, I'm not going home to bury Sarah, I'm going to stay here to bury Sarah, is because this genealogy is in a very odd place. See, most genealogies, the authors, they take a chapter or section of Scripture and they dedicate it to it so that we might know that these were real people with real names that lived real lives, that that fulfilled the promises of God in time and all those things. Here, it's just stuck in the story. And the reason that it's stuck in the story is to remind us what I just said. To remind us that all of Sarah's family is back east. All of Sarah's family is back in Mesopotamia. That's where we're going to go to have the funeral. That's where we need to go to do the burial. Abraham says, no, no, we're not going to do that. I'm going to bury her here. This is where she died. There is no going back. In fact, the future lies here. The future of God's promise lies here, not back there. Abraham's actions are evidence of his faith in God's promises, even in his wife's death. So he believes God in his word and he prepares for the future because of what he believes God will in fact do. Now it's interesting here that the only part, the only piece of the land that Abraham ever owned was a grave, isn't it? It's just interesting. Family burial site, he's actually buried there. His sons and grandsons are buried there. In fact, none of the patriarchs that come following him, Isaac, Jacob, their wives, none of them are buried back in Mesopotamia. In fact, none of them ever go back to 
Mesopotamia. They will inherit the land, they will possess the land, they will die in the land, and they will be buried in the land. And it is significant that Abraham did buy, did purchase this piece of property, that it wasn't given to him. All those details, they mean something. The the negotiation, the location, the witnesses, the citizens of the city even that walk in and out of the city gate where these sons of Heth and Ephron are negotiating the deal with Abraham, all witnesses to that account, all in the hearing of what the transaction actually will be, the weighing out of the silver, the deed that's handed over, all of that's significant in that Abraham now had, he and his family, now had an impeccable claim to this particular piece of property. In other words, nobody could ever come back and reclaim it because all the I's were dotted and all the T's were crossed. This small piece of land, evidence of the whole land which was promised. You see, Ephron walked away from this transaction with a pocket full of silver that he couldn't take with him when he died. And Abraham, in the same moment, obtained an inheritance with God that he could not lose. God's promises would be fulfilled. And Abraham places his stake in that truth. Abraham's distinctive. What is it? What sets him apart? It is his faith in the midst of his wife's death. So we say something about Abraham. We also learn something, of course, about God here as well. I'm not going to spend as long here. Just want to make a comment or two. Something about the remarkable nature of God. God's promises are actually made more sure in death. Wait, what? Wait, 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 wait. More sure in death, yeah. God's promises to Abraham and to us, they are actually made more sure in death. Death did not keep Sarah's offspring from possessing the land, did it? Death did not end the fact that from Sarah's womb would come a great nation. We can look back now on this side of history and see that all of that was true. They're her descendants. They populated this land. They became the owners of this land. Israel, the nation, was birthed through the line, the lineage, the heritage, the generations that followed Abraham and Sarah. Those things happened. See, God's promises, they don't end with this life. They are only just birthed in this life. Certainly, we hold on to them in this life. Because they will be fully fulfilled then allows us to hope today. And they are partially fulfilled today, which reinforces that hope in what is to come. The ultimate fulfillment, the final consummation of God's promises to Abraham And God's promise to us, they are found in the full weight of their reality after the grave. Listen to how Paul talks about this. He talks about life after death in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. What it meant for Jesus Christ, and then of course what it means for us to find life actually in the thing that we're afraid of, in our own Death. Here's what he writes, chapter 15. He says, Now if Christ is preached, 
that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? How do some among you, people of Corinth, say that there is no resurrection of the dead if just in the generation before it happened, the eyewitnesses are still around and I'm teaching it in the same way that God saved my own life from destruction? How can we say that? How church, how fellowship can some of us say there is no life after death? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Then I'm out of a job. You're out of a church home. There's no reason to be here because we're all still in our sins. But, Paul goes on, if in fact, and it is a fact, he says, but now Christ has been raised. Before, we didn't know. We weren't quite sure. It was promised, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by man, Adam, came death, by a man also, Jesus Christ, came resurrection from the dead. For is in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. God's promises today are made more sure in what's true beyond the grave, in what's true through death. So we have this distinctive about Abraham, that his faith, the promises of God, is what allowed him to hope even in death. We have this remarkable plan of God that would, in a very counterintuitive way, have us die that we might see the final promise, the fully consummated promises fulfilled and because we have that knowledge through his word to us we can hope today even in death of those around us our loved ones so we say something about us as well this text does it's something that is guaranteed for us a promise that is guaranteed to us by God and I'll say it this way death is not the end It is only a doorway to hope fulfilled. Death is not the end for us. It is but a doorway to hope fulfilled. Sarah lived 127 years. 127 years is not long in the scope of eternity, past or future. We have 80 or 90. If all goes well, that's not very long either. But death, men and women, is not the end. I mentioned this earlier in verse 4. It says, strangers and sojourners. Abraham was in the land in particular, and Abraham was in his faith in Christ in the land. Even though they call him a prince of God, they know nothing of God. They just have heard about Abraham's reputation with God. He is a stranger and a sojourner spiritually, just like we are. Resident aliens like Abraham. Spiritual exiles that are far from home, living in temporary dwellings. Tents that are now made of wood instead of canvas and that will fall to the ground not soon after we die. Have you ever been to a foreign country or ever been in a place where you are uh, uh, distinctly different? You are just out of place. The way the, maybe the language is different or the appearance of the people is different. Everybody looks at you different, you're just kind of stuck out of place. Ever been in that situation? Minority? Well, welcome to the life of Abraham. 
That was his entire life, 65 years in the promised land. Alone. Birth of Isaac, there were three of them. Before he died, he didn't see the promises fulfilled. Stranger. Alien in the land. Abraham's life. And welcome to your life as a Christian. That is your life. You're strange. You're weird. I'm looking at you and I can tell. I am too. Sojourner, not here for very long. You won't find your home here. You will, in fact, stick out like an evergreen in a field of blue bonnets. You'll stick out. Like a big old oak tree in a corn field. Like wearing a three-piece suit to Bonnaroo. You'll stick out. Or even to fellowship, for that matter. You will be weird, you'll be strange, you won't fit in. We might say it this way, in this life we're sojourners. In death we are heirs to the promise, the promise of God. Hebrews 11, chapter uh, chapter 11, verses 39 and 40, it's this famous passage, the hall of faith, all that have gone before us, that died with faith, having not seen the promises of God, but having believed the promises of God, just as God is inviting us to believe here, even in this life and in the life to come. Uh, The writer of Hebrews writes these words about all of these that have gone before us. All of these, having gained approval through their faith, how do we gain approval with God? Just side note. Through faith, through belief in Jesus Christ, there is not any other way, no performance, no showing up at church, no minimizing our sins, no limiting our sins, There is only one way, and that is through a belief in Jesus Christ. All of these, here's how they gained approval, through faith in Christ, who died and imputed righteousness to them on their behalf. They all gained his approval through faith. They did not receive what was promised on this earth because God had provided something better for them and for us after we leave. Death is not the end. Our citizenship is found in heaven. Since last October, I've felt the reality of this in my own soul. I felt like an alien, a sojourner, a stranger, an exile in, in my own heart, struggling with depression and anxiety. I, I mentioned it earlier. Things that are true of me today, that are a propensity toward today, that will not be true of me in the life to come. So grateful for that. I've wrestled with it. There have been intensely dark moments. There have been intensely sad moments. Intensely angry moments. Intensely hopeless moments. I was with uh, Lloyd uh, this past week. We were sitting on the steps of the courthouse with a young man. Lloyd asked me this question and asked me to share it with the young man. He asked me, how do you find hope when you're hopeless? How, in fact, do you find hope in the midst of a situation like this young man has faced? How do you and I, how how do we find hope when it seems hopeless to us? The answer to that question is in what happens immediately after death. The answer to that question, our hope for today, the reason we can live today with some measure of joy and peace and rest and we can be faithful for all of our days and want to live a long life the reason that we can do that is because of what's true 
that we are only here for a short time and that all of those promises are fulfilled when we join God in heaven. Our hope for today is in what's true on the other side. Actually, that's our greatest hope. You see, darkness in our lives, it's whatever it looks like in your life, it's it's all around us today, and it's not meant to just be survived. Like, if I can just get through this darkness, then I can have better days here on earth. Well, some degree that's true, right? That, that's not false. But that's not the reason that we live, just so I can get through this and then maybe I'll have joy. I mean, just get through this with my kid, then maybe all will work out right. It, get through that with your kid or you get through this situation, and, and then what happens after a couple of months? You're in another situation, right? And darkness, trouble and pain and sorrow and grief, they're all around us all the time. And there's joy that runs along with it. These things are parallel tracks. I'm not saying there's an absence of God's presence here. My gosh, there's incredible presence. Promises that are partially fulfilled here. The strength that grows through pain and life that comes through darkness. All of that's true, but darkness around us is the norm. Sadness and loneliness, fear, they don't end here on this earth. We so often look at God in the midst of our sorrow and our grief and our pain, and we say, God, where are your promises? Where are they? I've said that a lot this past year. Where are they? And I believe when we come at God angry, just, gosh, I don't understand, confused, frustrated, I said it earlier, God's just the same. He's just like arms open wide. Just come at me with all your finite strength. Just come at me. I'm here. In fact, I'm glad you're here. Even in the way that you're here. I knew you were angry. Good grief. Life doesn't work great. I knew you were sad. I knew you were hopeless in moments. I knew you were confused and had questions and doubt. I I knew all about that. And now you're bringing your whole heart to me. Oh, why do we fear bringing our anger and sadness to God? Why do we fear that? My arms are wide enough. They're plenty big for you. Plenty big to bring all that you are to me. I love you. I'm proud of you. Do the best that you can with the life that you've been given. And I'm here to give you hope today, now. And that hope, that hope is found today because of my promise of what will be. I promised Abraham, guess what? His descendants found the land. I'm promising you a home, a place you can call home. And it's guaranteed for you and for me. Hope is found in death, the death of my son. See, that's where hope is found. It's through death that we receive the promises of God by the work of his son. So here's what I'm asking you to do, Bill. Here's what I'm asking you to do, fellowship. I'm asking you to hold two things for just a little while, temporarily. I'm asking you to hold your reality and all that goes with it. And I'm asking you to hold the promise that is true. The R and the P. Those things are always together. No matter what your reality is, the promise is still true. I am still good. I am still faithful. 
For everyone that has a beating heart, death is inevitable, yes. Yes, it is. But death is not the end. And our hope is found in what is certainly coming. Hope fulfilled is but a moment away for all of us. You know, we often ask the question, as we get to the end of a message, what is it about this truth and this particular narrative account that our hope today is actually found in what is true or more fully true in tomorrow? We get a taste of it that gives us hope, but we know what is coming. That's how we can live today. How would that change us? What might it mean for you to sit with that, to process that, to believe that more fully, to trust that more fully? What would you do different in your life if you actually trusted fully that that was true in your life? And I will ask you that question to consider here in just a couple of minutes. I'll give you some time to do that, but I've had a little time to think about that question. And so I'm gonna go first. If I could learn a lesson from Abraham, if I trust truly in what God has made so clear about life, death, and life eternal that every single one of us would face, I'll tell you what would be different about me. I would worry far less about money than I do today. The thing that I think brings security actually doesn't, and I would live less like it. I would. I, I would get less done on my to-do list. I'd even burn the yellow legal pad that I keep my to-do list on. I would have more fun. I would have a lot more fun. I would literally stop to smell the roses. I would delight in my wife and kids. I would worry less about this place and trust God more to do what only He can do in the lives of people. I would grow more comfortable with my failure, with my brokenness, I would live more confessionally, more comfortable with apologizing and forgiving. I I would be more okay when others are not okay with me. I would. I would be sad when I'm sad. I'd be angry when I feel angry and I wouldn't continue to run past those emotions and hope just stuffing them down inside would be okay someday later. I would feel more and I would do less. I would cry more. I would weep more. I would walk more humbly, I would speak more honestly, even if it cost me something. I, I, I would actually do that which I am. I would actually be that which I am, a stranger on this earth, sojourner on this earth. I would be different, I'd be more okay to be hated for it. I would speak truth, I would love radically, and I would suffer more. Yeah, I would suffer more, more like Jesus Christ who, who suffered and died for one reason, that you and I might have a place to call home. That's why. That we might have a true place, a permanent place to call our home with him and with his father who suffered and he died but who didn't stay dead found life after the grave and guaranteed that life for you and for me who made a way for us to die with full assurance that death is not the end. That, men and women, is our greatest hope.
it is. And I want to give you a minute to answer the question for yourself. What is it about the truth that God offers to us here? Hope in this life because of what is to come. Hope now that we taste, but will be fulfilled tomorrow. The shortness of life is meaningful then. God would place us here even but for a little time, and then the very fear we have of death would actually be the threshold of life eternity with him. How might that change if you truly believe it? How might that change your life right now? Take just a minute before the Lord. I'll give you a couple of minutes. We've made the time in the service. I want you to think about that question and answer it for yourself. Father, would you give us eyes to see where the culture around us tries to choke life out, where our own sin nature tries to choke life out, eyes to see what is really true about you, about faith, and about us. Would you make us a strange people? a weird people, a ridiculous-looking people, because we have eyes to see, hope that we have today because of what your Son, Jesus Christ, has done and what will be true of us in eternity to come. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Would you stand with me? I want to read one passage of the book of Hebrews as we leave. I mentioned it earlier. This, too, is Hebrews chapter 11. And I think this takes us where we need to go as we leave. Hebrews chapter 11, the writer writes, By faith, Abraham lived as an alien in the land of promise, as as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob to follow, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he, Abraham, was looking for the city which has actual foundations, whose architect and builder is God, and who died in faith without having received the promises, but having seen them 
and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that he was a stranger and an exile on this earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking another country, not this one. And indeed, if he had been thinking of the country from which he went out, then he would have returned there and buried Sarah there. But as it is, he and Sarah both desired a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them and for you. Go in peace. We'll see you next week.